Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Well, good morning. And the United States Supreme Court is expected to announce decisions on two major affirmative action cases very soon, uh, maybe even today. And so uh, these two uh, cases would seek to end the use of race as a factor in higher education admission decisions. And so uh, my first guest is Ken Tashi, who is a Campus Reform Higher Education Fellow and um, attorney and adjunct instructor at Suffolk University. So good morning, Ken, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Jenna, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so um, yeah, this is something that is uh, has been an issue for a while, affirmative action, and even um, some presidential candidates now, particularly uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, is making this one of his platform issues. And so um, I think just from that perspective, it's gotten a lot more attention in the media. But um, what exactly is being challenged here and why, um, in, in your opinion, is, uh, is this issue so important for campus reform? Sure. So uh, the two cases that were brought uh, by Students for Fair Admissions are brought against Harvard College, the oldest private college in the country, and North Carolina, University of North Carolina, the oldest public institution in the country. And what Students for Fair Admissions is asserting is that the use of race by these institutions in their admission procedures in order to try to create racial diversity on their campuses is um, well outside the scope of what was authorized and permitted by the court about 20 years ago. Uh, That is to use race as a factor in admissions, uh, never to be a predominant or determining factor, but just one of many factors. And unfortunately, that process has really morphed into where race now is not just a factor in admissions, but has become the factor in many cases. Um, And as a determining factor, um, it, it amounts really to nothing more than racial balancing or the usual racial quotas which have for a very long time been illegal under federal law. And you only have to look as far as comments by Harvard counsels, uh, Harvard's counsel during oral arguments when he acknowledged that race is a determining factor at Harvard University in some cases, which again has uh, strayed uh, very far from the original intent of the court uh, regarding the very narrow use of race in college admissions. So, and, and that raises an interesting question as well, Ken, is um, in, in your mind, what, um, h- how can the courts actually, or not the courts, uh, how can colleges rather um, use race as a, as a factor in admissions that the Supreme Court currently allows? And hopefully this will be overturned, um, but, but where did it start and, and why has it morphed this far? Sure. It started about 20 years ago when the court authorized and permitted the use of race in order to achieve student body diversity. Uh, But the court was very clear to limit uh, that consideration of race, Um, again, never to be a a predominant determining factor, because if it was, then it was just simply nothing more than racial balancing or racial quotas, um, which the court has struck down uh, numerous times. Um, And unfortunately, institutions I, I want to say become really lazy in the admission process in that they 
uh, in many cases, uh, determine or, or use the common applications box checking system for racial classification as a primary factor for admission, which was never uh, the original intent or um, consideration of the court, that race was only supposed to be one of many factors that were to consider. And I think in the most recent oral arguments, the court pointed out there is anywhere between 30 and 40 factors that are considered. Um, and that um, race has taken on a much um, stronger level of consideration. Uh, and as such, uh, that's why I believe the court is poised to, to reverse the use of race further in admission decisions moving forward. I'm speaking with Ken Tashi, who's a campus reform higher education fellow and attorney. And um, and Ken, hopefully we get to that appropriate decision from the court uh, because you know, this has now gone even further in terms of just uh, the cultural context and especially how affirmative action is being used um, in admission application decisions, when you consider factors um, like all of these diversity, equity, and inclusion officers that we're now finding out are part of a lot of uh, universities and even public-funded universities. And um, so how could this opinion potentially uh, impact other ways that DEI and ESG and some of that are, are being used across college campuses? Or is this uh, likely just to only affect the admissions process? I mean, could it affect scholarships um, and other things like that? Well, you know, what's interesting is is we don't use race um, as a factor in employment decisions. Um, so we don't use it when we're hiring faculty or staff on college campuses. We don't use race as a factor in awarding scholarships or financial aid. Uh, the Supreme Court previously has been very clear that uh, a student's race cannot be the basis for elementary or secondary education school assignments. Uh, we just had a recent ruling by a federal court over the last week or so that ruled that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the use of race by the minority business development agency to award federal dollars um, is, is not appropriate. So the question really is, wh why do we continue to allow race to be used as a factor at all in college admissions, um, when virtually in all other aspects of society, we've eliminated that consideration. And, um, and I, I think that's going to weigh very heavily on the court's consideration here. And frankly, if they, if they do away with the use of race as an admission criteria, um, I do think that could have an impact and it should have an impact on sort of this, this expanded um, focus on DEI on our campuses. We, we need to get back to focusing on the core mission of institutions of higher education. Um, and if they really are intent on trying to create a, um, a broad, diverse student body, then they need to start considering other factors like socioeconomics, uh, like uh, geographic diversity or experiential diversity. Or how about some ideological diversity on college campuses? <laughs> I think Wouldn't that, that would be, be interesting? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we, we've, in essence, um, cultivated probably one of the most closed-minded um, um, group of, of students ever in history because they're, they're incapable of considering or hearing uh, alternate or diverse viewpoints. And it would go a long way to, to, uh, to underscoring the importance of uh, intellectual and ideological diversity on campuses if we could really expand um, that on, uh, in higher education. Yeah, and, and that makes so much sense. And I was reading uh, the ACLU's page on this, which, of course, they're totally outraged. And, uh, you know, they filed an amicus brief as well in this. And um, they have this Q&A. And, and they actually uh, have this 
paragraph on their website that says race conscious admission policies help create a diverse student body, promote integration on college campuses and create an inclusive educational environment that benefits all students. And uh, students from diverse backgrounds who learn from each other are exposed to a variety of experiences, backgrounds, interests, and talents, and are better prepared to to, uh, take on and be successful in our society. And then they actually say this, Ken, banning any consideration of race would hamper the growth of generations of students who will be unprepared for an increasingly diverse nation. And I just think this is so ridiculous because, I mean, college, unless you have non-traditional students, it's like, okay, you don't have a diverse age group population. You don't have diverse, as we've been talking about, ideology. I mean, so why is race such an emphasis for organizations like ACLU to say that, oh, we have to force this kind of, quote unquote, integration and diversity. Otherwise, students aren't really prepared to go into the real world. Yeah, well, look, this, this is what I think to be the uh, real vulnerability of, of that argument, that um, it, it raises two issues. One, it, it's, it's somewhat the height of arrogance for administrators, and in this case, ACLU on behalf of administrators, to, to assert that they can predict the views and experiences of individuals based solely and exclusively on their racial classification. I mean, we need to remember that, um, that, uh, that uh, racial classification is not a predictor or proxy of life experience. And to presume that you can predict how people are going to think or act or what their opinions are based solely exclusively on race is frankly ridiculous. Um, another aspect of this that is a bit disingenuous is while we've got colleges and universities promoting incessantly the, the value of diversity on campus, um, you also have many colleges and, and you know, universities around the country that have been promoting racial segregating practices on their campuses. And we've seen this through minority-only uh, admission programs, minority-only graduation programs, minority-only housing, minority-only student organizations and orientation programs. Um, and you can't trumpet the benefits of diversity while at the same time you're separating and classifying students on your campus based on, among, among other categories, race. Um, it just completely undermines the assertion that diversity is an indispensable part it, it does require us to say that we need to look at a much broader diversity base if we believe there is value in having diverse views and experiences on campus. But that's simply not achieved by evaluating uh, the racial classification box checked off on an application. That, that is so incredibly well said, and uh, it seems like they're trying to promote this idea of a diverse student body while at the same time also promoting uh, this racial se- segregation in so many different aspects. And so they're contradicting themselves in, um, in the same type of experience while trying to create as well the, this very artificial environment. And, uh, and they think that that's somehow b- going to best equip students for the rest of society. I mean, I've lived in a lot of different uh, parts, you know, visited a lot of different parts of, uh, of the country, and um, there's no way that, you know, people are, are being forced to live in certain areas just based on race. I mean, you don't ever get the same um, experience that they're trying to force on to college campuses in the actual society as well. I mean, so it just, it seems, it, it, it seems just completely absurd. Um, and the one other question in just the last few minutes I have with you here, um, Ken, and I really appreciate your time and, um, campus reform does such a great job. Um, and so 
the ACLJ or the ACLU um, also had uh, cited Fisher versus the University of Texas, where the Supreme Court reaffirmed that um, diversity is a quote unquote compelling governmental interest. Um, is that also at issue in this in this case to to basically dis- dispense with that ridiculous proposition? Yeah, I, I, that is also an aspect of this, and and um, um, the the consideration of race to achieve student body diversity has really been at the core of these practices. Um, and you know, a number of justices during oral arguments raised specific questions about um, the value, quote, value of just focusing exclusively on racial diversity on our college campuses. You know, and, you know, let's use, for example, the historic black colleges and universities around the country. Um, Those campuses, no one would claim that those campuses boast racial diversity, but no one would challenge the fact that those institutions produce outstanding doctors, lawyers, CEOs, CFOs, and other community and, and, and national leaders. So this claim or assertion that the only way that you can create, you know, sort of the benefits of a, of a racially diverse institution is, is to inject race in virtually every decision you make from admissions on down is, is, is frankly baseless. Um, and, and so, again, I think this is the reason why the court's poised to eliminate the use of race and possibly uh, also eliminate uh, the argument that uh, diversity on campus is a compelling governmental interest. Well, hopefully we will get uh, a good opinion from the Supreme Court uh, even as, as early as today. And so typically uh, the opinions are handed down around 10 a.m. and uh, we'll be following that. And uh, so, Ken, where can people reach campus reform and also um, support your work there? Well, they can go to campusreform.org. Um, that's our website, and you can see there a whole host of information, resources, interviews, articles um, about college and university uh, issues. That's really our primary focus, and um, a tremendous amount of uh, campus reporters and professional writers uh, that contribute to, I think, one of the, one of the best um, news sources for higher education uh, law and issues. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, you articulated that incredibly, incredibly well. And I know that our audience uh, really, really appreciates your work and your explanation of that issue. So thanks so much. So Ken Tashi from Campus Reform, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, the Biden administration is continuing to uh, attempt to uh, basically legislate by executive order and executive fiat. And uh, there are several stories this morning uh, that are very concerning, including that the Biden HHS or Health and Human Services would uh, propose a rule that changes the definition of person to exclude humans before birth. So obviously, uh, this is an attempt to, on the federal level, impact abortion. And the HHS proposal would shield sex crimes, coerced abortions, child sterilization, 
Um, and this is uh, just just a ridiculous uh, rule. And so the Department of Health, according to Just the News, received more than 11,000 comments on its, on its notice of proposed rulemaking, because um, there's always a notice and comment period um, in terms of these rules. And uh, that was before it closed Friday, um, only 65 um, of which of of these um, of this accountability act are currently accessible to the public. So the proposed rulemaking, if approved, would change HIPAA's definitions of person to exclude human beings before birth, reproductive health care to broadly apply to the reproductive system and quote unquote public health to exclude use and disclosure of PHI for investigations or proceedings related to reproductive health care. Additionally, on January 13th, the Attorney General, so part of the Biden executive uh, branch, so this is also the Biden administration, signed a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, um, ruling factoring a criteria for firearms with uh, attached stabilizing braces, the rule which states that pistols or handguns with stabilizing braces will now be classified differently. And uh, that took effect on January 31st. And this new rule has the effect of basically turning millions of innocent gun owners into felons. So meaning that uh, we as gun owners could face fines and even imprisonment. So thankfully, uh, this new rule is being challenged by our good friend, uh, West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, who is also running for governor of that great state, and 26 other attorneys general. So Patrick Morrissey uh, joins me now to talk more about this. So um, Patrick, this this rule seems very clearly uh, t- contravening the Second Amendment. You know, Jenna, uh, thank you very much for having me on. And, and what a setup that is, because it seems like every single day we're forced to push back on one unlawful and overreaching regulation after another. And we know they that this administration wants to ignore uh, the Dobbs decision and the respect for life that was provided uh, last year. And we think that's wrong. And we know also when it comes to the Second Amendment uh, to the Biden administration, this is something to run roughshod over. And we think this pistol brace regulation really is violative of the Second Amendment, but also uh, it's inconsistent completely with the case law. Jenna, for years, these guys, the ATF, they were approving all of these pistol braces, and no one thought that that was going to change the classification of the guns. And the real issue at hand is that the Biden administration wants to change your, uh, your pistol with the brace and convert it into a short-barrel rifle, and that means you'll have to pay a tax for the stamp, the $200, and you'll have to register uh, with the ATF. And millions and millions and millions of Americans uh, right now have undoubtedly not uh, signed up with the ATF as we're waiting out in North Dakota for the case that we filed uh, to be resolved. But at the end of the line, this is really about the Biden administration trying to please some of their liberal constituencies They don't have the statutory power to do it. Congress never provided them with the specific authority to act. And here we are again and again and again dealing with a lawless administration. Fortunately, the AGs step up and fight back, and I'm comfortable we're going to win 
on most of these cases, our batting average is really, really strong. And I'm so thankful, uh, Patrick Morrissey, that you and other attorneys general across the country are fighting back because this is, again, just another example of how the Biden administration is trying to override uh any sort of executive power that's legitimate and simply go and create these types of rules to do whatever they want with the goal of, uh, in, in this instance, uh, simply gun control that they couldn't pass through Congress. And I mean, it's my opinion that the ATF as, as an executive agency is unconstitutional anyway, just like the Department of Education, just like so many of all of these federal agencies uh, that don't have a constitutional basis or you know, any kind of other authority. Um, but here, uh, you know, this type of of rule, it seems like it was just fabricated by the ATF, kind of out of thin air. And as you're as you're expressing that, there's no um, real, there's no uh, statutory or congressional authority that's given. Um, and certainly, you know, this isn't something that I think is consistent with the Supreme Court in any of the recent um, gun case opinions. That's right. Yeah, you know, Jenny, you're exactly right, and. You know, long, long time ago, uh, Congress had passed uh, the National Firearms Act, and they had looked at a wide variety of issues. And when Congress passed some of the laws, they were trying to regulate some of the sawed-off guns and and weapons that were really used by gangsters and that could be concealed or have indiscriminate accuracy. So here we have a product. You have a pistol with a brace. And these are frequently used by individuals who are disabled or who are senior citizens. And this product actually makes the product more accurate, less dangerous, therefore reducing the risk to public safety. And when you see an administration trying to further regulate in that area, which is the exact opposite of why the statute was passed, that's a big issue. And I think that runs counter to the West Virginia VPA decision we had last year, which really made it clear on the major questions of the day, big political or economic questions, Congress, not the unelected bureaucrats, uh, makes the call. But this administration keeps ignoring that, and it's, it's going to take all of us consistent effort over the next few years to make sure that uh, these guys respect the rule of law. They won't do it on their own, and that's why Uh, my colleagues and I are going to have to force them in court. I'm talking with uh, West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, who is also running for governor of that great state. And uh, we definitely wish you uh, good fortune and success there. Uh, And I think you'd be a fantastic governor. So um, hopefully your campaign is going well. And I want to ask you about that as well um, in a few minutes. Uh, But I also, you know, you raise such a great point that the Biden administration is just repeatedly, repeatedly ignoring Um, all of the rule of law, and they just keep thinking that they're going to get away with this. And, you know, Biden has even come out a few times if he even knows what he's saying and and basically like, yeah, well, you know, we might lose in court, but but oh, well, or, you know, we know that this is against the rule of law, but oh, well, and comments to that effect. And yet it seems like nobody takes seriously when a Republican in Congress is filing impeachment papers against um, for example, some of these um, federal agency presidential appointees. And yet we had the the two crazy impeachments of President Trump. And so it seems like there is no accountability on the federal level. So it is 
um, at least encouraging that states like West Virginia, uh, Florida, and others are holding um, the Biden administration accountable and also at bay for state sovereignty. Um, But I'm interested as well in your uh, thought on um, the Democrats' proposal and trying to uh, creatively get gun control um, through another method, which is Gavin Newsom's, in my opinion, preposterous proposal for a 28th Amendment. Um, the, and the text of that would just be to give uh, the, the power to regulate firearms and protect the work that is uh, being done to keep our families safe is uh, what he's suggesting. I don't think that this would ever have any ability of, of getting through um, either Congress right now with a two-thirds uh, majority or through a convention of states and certainly not uh, be ratified by the requisite number of 34 states. But um, have you heard much about this and what's your opinion on on a 28th You know, I have heard I have heard that Gavin Newsom is, is pushing this. This is consistent with a lot of the, the terrible left-wing ideas uh, coming out of California. Uh, but you're right, Jenna. I don't think that it's going to see the light of day. In fact, I think what you've seen in a lot of the red and even the purple states is that people were moving more to constitutional carry because people know that it should be a basic right that you could um, conceal carry and that you have the ability uh, to carry these firearms on your person, and that the Second Amendment isn't just for hunting or fishing, that it's actually a a right, specific right, enumerated in the Constitution, part of the Bill of Rights. And I think that's where most Americans are. Uh, But you are getting some crazy ideas out there coming from some of these governors and some of these states that would really erode the fabric of our uh, republic and would undermine our constitution. There are provisions just going after directly our uh, protections under the Bill of Rights. Of course, as we've discussed, there's effort to completely eradicate the rule of law and various double standards. That is deeply disturbing to me as well. And I believe in the schools. There's been an effort to really uh, transform a lot of these kids teach them the wrong things in school, whether it's critical race theory or other theories that really have no basis in reality, and try to convince people that America at its founding was a bad nation. Well, Jen, I think both of us and most of your listeners can agree, America wasn't a bad nation as a founder. We had brilliant founders that came up with an amazing document. They also did give us the ability to to change it through very specific means, but they also empowered people to defend their rights. That's why I'm running for governor, because of all the work that I've done as attorney general, where we've been able to take on federal overreach and the woke left and the crazy ideas uh, that will really go after our culture, uh, I think as governor, I can fight back even more and supersize the efforts that we've seen in the AG's office. And so people want to follow and listen. They can go to patrickmorrissey.com. I think we're in a really good position here in this governor's race because when we win, we're not only going to have the attorney general on point in West Virginia uh, pushing back, we're going to have every single state agency that's affected by crazy ideas reaching out. And then we can build the coalition of many, many states to go after some of these ideas that are so inconsistent with the Constitution and the rules that we were all taught when we were younger. 
Yeah, and so well said, uh, Patrick Morrissey, because uh, there's been so much emphasis and attention, and and I think you know rightly so on the the presidential race for 2024, and yet. Uh, you know, we don't know how that's going to go. And, you know, polls suggest, um, you know, various outcomes and uh, whether or not Biden is ahead, whether or not he even is going to end up uh, running. It's it's my personal theory. I think Gavin Newsom is doing some of this in the media, like suggesting a 28th Amendment and uh, and whatever, just to get more media, because I think he's poised to run um, likely in 2024, uh, but definitely 2028, um, if not before that. And so we have to, though, as uh, concerned citizens and as Americans looking at our Constitution, also be very, very concerned about state sovereignty. And so regardless of what happens and the outcome of the 2024 election and whether we get a Democrat or, or a Republican in the White House, states can still do exactly what you are doing in West Virginia, what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida, um, what what Kim Reynolds is doing in Iowa, what what Sarah Sanders is doing in Arkansas. I mean, there's a lot of there are a lot of really good um, conservative Republican governors uh, around the country and saying it doesn't matter what the federal government tries to do. We're still going to protect our states and still make sure that the rule of law is upheld for the states. And so um, how how, in your opinion, does uh, should people be cons- be focused on and considering uh, statewide races like yours when there's so much emphasis on the federal race, especially in a presidential election year? You know, it's a great question, and it's something I get asked a lot because people, when I'm on the phone talking to people, they'll say, why is the governor's race relevant if I'm so focused on what's going to happen in the White House or the U.S. Senate? You know, a lot of really hotly contested seats. We have a big U.S. Senate race going on in West Virginia. And I say this, uh, that the states really being um, co-equal with the federal government play an enormous role, and it's so important that the states exercise the tools that they have to push back. You know, Jen, as you know, there's obviously the supremacy clause where the federal government on various issues uh, can trump uh, what's going on at the state and local level. But people forget that the states were established, they're separate sovereign governments compared to the feds, and they have so much ability to articulate the policies. They have different sets of authorities. Contrary to what you heard one Supreme Court justice say, the states have different sets of police authorities, police power authorities that are not provided in the federal government. And the states have different tools that are available. Plus, most of the action in terms of what gets regulated and what gets addressed is occurring on the local level, which is exactly what the founders envisioned. So when I think of why the West Virginia governor's race is relevant, I think in terms of there, the action that you're doing close to home, but then the ability to set a precedent when states come together as a group, as a force, as an alliance, you're in a position, whether we're talking about uh, legal issues, whether you're talking about public policy issues, whether you're talking about economic issues, mm-hmm. you'll have the force of strength to push back against the Fed in a way yep. that's different even than Congress. And you could be. And, and we got to leave it there. Go to uh, patrickmorrissey.com. We'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. And uh, as we're speaking about an overreaching Biden administration and federal government and overemphasis on the 2024 presidential election, uh, Biden himself is running on uh, a platform, really, that uh, he will solve the economy. And, you know, we've seen Build Back Better and how that's really not working out and how uh, even though he is just totally ignoring reality, he somehow thinks that, uh, you know, this he's, he's just totally ignoring the inflation crisis. He's ignoring the economy. And, you know, he thinks that um, at first his White House says he's not responsible for the elevated gas prices. And then it goes down, you know, it goes up a dollar, goes down two cents, and then he takes responsibility for the two cents. And uh, for most families who see the increased uh, prices of airline tickets, of gasoline, of groceries, of all of these um, just common everyday necessities as well, uh, they're not really buying it. So uh, what is going on in the economy and uh, how is this affecting you? Um, I'd like to welcome my next guest, Dr. Dave um, Arnott, and he is an economist and also an outspoken Christian. So we always appreciate that here at AFR. So uh, good morning, Dave. Good morning, Jenna. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So, um, so overall, you know, with with this whole uh, economic disaster, I think, uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important for families to understand about the current state of the economy? Well, first, you're correct. It was caused by the fiscal problem of too much spending. The Inflation Reduction Act was just a canard. I mean, it was almost laughable. It makes us think of George Orwell's 1984, where they talked about new speak, where words mean the opposite of what they say. That didn't reduce inflation. That caused inflation. And it's very simple economics. The more dollars you add to the supply, the less each one is worth. And people understand this. So this inflation was not natural. It was caused by fiscal policy. Yeah, well, and and this is where I... I just think it's ridiculous that the Biden administration, but like the Democrats and the leftists do, you know, they like to spin everything and they like to uh, take credit for things that they haven't accomplished. And then they like to just say, well, this isn't our fault and, you know, some of these effects. And so uh, where is inflation going from here? And is there anything that the Republican Congress can do or even individual states to try to curb uh, inflation? Because um, I'm very concerned about the value of the dollar as well. Oh, you should be concerned, Jenna, and you and I as Christians are concerned about the poor. We are commanded to take care of widows and orphans. On the surface, inflation seems like it would hurt the rich more than the poor, but it it does not. The rich can move their assets into things like gold and real estate and stocks, which will weather out the storm and go up with inflation. Matter of fact, that's why you have an advertisement from Legacy Precious Metals. Why are they advertising on the Jenna Ellis show? Because they know that this is the time when you go into those three entities if you have money. But if you're poor, you don't have money to invest. If you're poor, you have to buy milk and diapers on the weekly market. And, Jenna, here's some advice for your listeners. Don't put off buying diapers. (laughs) Bad things happen. And so President Biden's fiscal policies of overspending and causing inflation have harmed the poor because they have to buy things from the daily market. And this really hurts their lifestyle. Now, data shows that since Biden took office, wages are up 14 percent, but inflation is up 15 percent. So they're losing by one. Well, 
you might look at it and say, okay, it's only one, but a tax bill will come soon. It's something called bracket creep. So if you're making 15% more, that means you're going to pay higher taxes at the end of the year. So these policies by the Biden administration of spending are causing inflation and harming the poor. Mm, that's such a great uh, point and, you know, well said in terms of our responsibility as Christians. And I'm talking to Dr. Dave Arnott, who is a Christian economist. And um, and I appreciate you giving a shout out to Legacy Precious Metals, um, you know, our good friends over <laughs> on uh, the Salem podcast side. And, you know, they're Christians as well and just encourage uh, individuals to really get um, to consider their financial health. And I think that's so important as well as Christians. And so as we're looking at the not only our financial health, but also the the diversity of policy and the contrast between Biden and then um, a more conservative candidate. As a Christian, what type of policy are you looking for from the conservative candidates who uh, who could step into the White House in 2024 and hopefully reverse some of all of these damaging policies? Yeah, the Federal Reserve was formed in 1913 for one purpose, stable prices. They have failed. And the reason they have failed in monetary policy is because they're having to keep up with the fiscal policy of spending. So it's not so much their fault, as we've said earlier, it's fiscal policy from the government, from the Biden administration, which has caused this. The guy you used to work for, President Trump, during his administration, we were crying for higher inflation. This is hard to even think about. Just a few years ago, inflation was stuck around 1.2 to 1.4. And really, all the economists were saying, how do we increase inflation? That's astounding to think about. That's because during the Trump administration, the policies encouraged productivity. See, you can have increasing wages and prices if people are producing more. And it was the fiscal policies of the Trump administration which encouraged people to produce more, which we're called to do as Christians, by the way, also. I've often said if you love your neighbor, you'll provide products and services she demands. If you love yourself, you'll make a profit while doing so. That is what happened during the Trump administration because the policies encouraged work. It encouraged productivity. The current policies discourage work and encourage the spending of fiscal money and increasing the money supply, which has caused our inflation. And uh, and that's really well expressed and and hopefully a little bit encouraging as well to to remember uh, the time under the Trump administration that um, we were prosperous as a country. We did have good policies that encourage work. And, you know, work is also part of the Christian ethic and worldview that work is actually a good thing. We should be productive in society. We should be taking care of ourselves and our families and being responsible. Uh, we, we should have. Uh, at not only economic policies, but also a worldview that uh, that that promotes and encourages work, not uh, and this personal responsibility, not just you know the, more of the the communist ideology that's coming from the Biden administration <laughs> that uh, discourages uh, wealth as if that is a negative thing, or that only the elitists and the the select few can hold wealth, and discourages that um, among the rest of the the population. Because good policies, at least as I see it, and I'm not an economist, but you know I participate in in our society, and as I see it. 
we have um, a system in in a good form of capitalism that encourages anyone to become as prosperous as they can be as long as they are willing to work hard. I mean, that's the very foundation of the American dream. And yet the leftists are trying to crush that and to suggest that it's better to just take a handout and be on welfare and, and be dependent on the government instead of dependent on our own hard work. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jenna. Um, America is the greatest economic engine in the history of mankind. That is absolutely factually true. Our GDP, uh, the, the GDP of China is getting close to us. They have four times as many people. That means they're a quarter of the way there. Come on. We know what we can do, and we've seen what America could do. It's the current policies that are preventing us from returning to the greatest economic engine in the history of mankind, which we factually are. I'm talking to you today from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I'm attending Acton University. And one of the authors here is a guy named Sam Gregg. He wrote a book called For God and Profit. Now, he got that phrase from the Middle Ages in the Renaissance when people would write at the bottom of a contract for God and profit. And he points out in that book that the king in earlier days could call money up or down depending on he, whether he was the loner or the, or the loanee. And that's exactly what we've seen. During the eight years of the Obama administration, government or the Fed had interest rates at zero for eight years, which is unheard of in economic history. Then it went up, up during the Trump administration, dropped during COVID. When I show this in my classroom at Dallas Baptist University, I say, okay, now think about which presidential administrations there were, if you're thinking of this two-dimensional graph. And some students start chuckling, and that's why I call it the Trump bump. <laughs> they raised the interest rates only during the Trump administration, then they had to go back down during COVID. So they were doing exactly what Samuel Gregg was talking about in For God and Profit. They're acting like the king. They called money down during that time. Now they're calling it inflation because they own more debt. It's very clear. Wow. And, and this just underscores, uh, Dave, the importance of making sure that we, the people, do get to select and prefer our leaders because we don't have kings and we shouldn't have kings in this country and we shouldn't have anyone in government that is acting like a king. Uh, and and having that sort of juxtaposition to say, well, you know, we're going to um, to increase uh, inflation, or we're going to have all of these different policies that depend on how we prefer society to be instead of genuinely p promoting the general welfare and uh, and genuinely saying we are going to be for we the people. And so um, in just the last couple of minutes I have with you here, um, what would mm. you encourage the Christian families who are listening? Um, what can they do to not only um, protect their own financial health and um, and be aware of some of these policies, but um, even within their own state, what what are some ways that they can participate in our civil society to try to um, affect better uh, capitalist policies uh, in our country? Yeah, gr <clears throat> great question, Jenna. That's exactly right. It's hard to change the national policy, isn't it? I mean, somebody listening to me from where I grew up in South Dakota or where I went to college in Kansas is listening to us this morning and say, okay, smart guy, what should I do? And Jenna, that's what you're asking. But a, a fellow Christian economist of mine named Art Lindsley said, the government should punish evil but not do good. The church 
should do good but not punish evil. That comes from Abraham Kuyper, who had this idea of sphere sovereignty, meaning we have different spheres in society and they have different responsibilities. It's quite clear to anyone who reads the Old and New Testament that the, the government today is doing jobs that were assigned to the church. So that's my advice to our friends listening, is pay less attention to the government and more attention to your individual family and your church. The, the charge to care for widows and orphans was not a charge to the government. That was a charge to the church. So be more involved in your family and more involved in your church. And that's where you'll find not only the spiritual and emotional uh, support to get through these difficult times, you'll find the economic engine also, because that's how America America became the greatest economic engine in the history of mankind. Really well said. And everyone can do that. Everyone can be more engaged in their family and their church. And and then guess what? The less that we pay attention uh, to all of the the discouraging things from national politics, and we should be paying attention, obviously, well-informed. And I'm grateful that uh, people tune in here to, to talk about these issues. But the less that we are so concerned and only concerned about uh, the political sphere, I think the more um, we will be focused on the good things of God and find joy in church and family. So um, that is that is a better balance, and I wish that we could, um, as originally intended, focus so much on church and family um, that the government doesn't have to be such a focus. And I wish that the government was functioning so well that we didn't have to think about it. Um, so Dave Arnott, I really appreciate your time. You can find um, your website is uh, just your name, DaveArnott.com, and you have a lot of great resources. Um, you're the Christian economist, and um, I'm seeing a lot of different uh, podcast episodes as well as um, you know some other articles and so forth that you post. So I uh, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks so much for your time. And in just the last few minutes that we have here um, before... Tomorrow is Friday. Um, I want to give you a quick update on uh, the submersible. Um, I know a lot of you who uh, wrote in and and have been commenting that you're following this story. Um, I am as well. And so the latest on this as of um, just a few minutes ago as well, the uh, the U.S. Coast Guard and the Navy are uh, still trying to locate the source of this what they're describing as banging, which has been a sound at 30-minute intervals. It's unclear um, it, how exactly uh, that has been been located, if they've been able to pinpoint the source. Um, there are sources suggesting that they do think that it is man-made, but whether that's coming from the submersible or not is the question. Um, so there are a few other vessels that are at the location site, and they have now covered and searched um, ground double uh, the state of Connecticut, but they are still trying to locate uh, the submersible. I'm following this um, online and um, you know looking for all of these updates. We need to be praying that by some miracle uh, we find these five men alive um, and by some miracle can also get them to the surface because uh, the, the suggestion is that the 96 hours of oxygen for an emergency situation will run out as of today. 
So uh, be praying for them, be praying for their families um, in the midst of what may be a possible loss. Um, But we'll continue to bring you more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And um, remember always to keep your focus on Christ. Be engaged in your church, your family, and also your civil society. I'm Jenna Ellis. You can reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. Make it a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.